Kick it off is Dr. Nina Kim from the University of Washington. She's a professor of medicine, infectious diseases, and allergy. Nina has worked most of her career on uh, hepatitis viruses, uh, did a lot of landmark work in hepatitis C, and now is focused a lot on hepatitis B. And that she's gonna, that's what she's gonna talk to us today about. It's a little bit more complicated at this point in time um, in terms of where we are with that, especially in terms of future opportunities for eradication, which are, feels like a long way off. But uh, Nina, welcome. Hi, everybody. Welcome back from lunch. Um, very excited to be here. I was telling Mike that um, one of my first memories of going to an HIV conference was actually the Ryan White conference. And so I'm very honored to be here. Um, I was very excited when the conference committee asked me to talk about hepatitis B because hep C normally gets a lot of play um, preferentially over hepatitis B, but I, I think hep B is as important as I hope you'll um, appreciate at the end of this talk. Here are my disclosures and our objectives for today. So hepatitis B remains a major contributor of end-stage liver disease. And um, this is data from the NA Accord, which is a North American collaboration of, um, of more than 20 clinical sites throughout the US and Canada. And the strength of this study was that we uh, validated ESLD outcomes. And you can see here that those with chronic hepatitis B still experienced liver disease progression into the modern ART era. So let's, let's start off with a, with a case here. So this is a 45-year-old man with HIV, presents for initial evaluation. Routine hep B screening reveals he has a positive surface antigen with a baseline viral level of 31 million. Liver panel is normal. CD4 count is 130. And HIV viral level is 15,600 copies per mil. HLA B57 screen is negative. Prefers a single tablet combo therapy. So which of the following is true regarding appropriate management of his hep B infection? I'll let you guys read the answers. Okay, let's, let's go ahead and advance and see what's, oh, interesting. Maybe there, is this going to change or is this everybody's response? Oh, okay. Oh. Okay, I, th I, think the, I think the answers got jumbled up. Okay, but yes, I, I agree with most of you, which is that the correct answer is D. It's not A, not a because the patient most likely has chronic infection um, since a, a normal ALT with a uh, very high viral level is not exactly what we see in someone who's acutely infected where their ALT would be elevated. It's not B. Um, because while ALT is an indication for starting therapy in someone who's mono-infected, you do not, this is not a necessary precondition for someone who has HIV and chronic hep B. And C, I'll explain why this regimen is a suboptimal choice. So before we dive into antiviral therapy, I want to review why hep B viral replication plays such a key role in disease pathogenesis. So these are two major studies from Taiwan. This is before the antiviral era. Um, and they followed folks for a long time with, this is hepatitis B mono infection. And you can see here that the baseline hep B viral level 
this is the initial baseline viral burden had a dose dependent relationship with the likelihood of later going on to develop hepatocellular carcinoma or cirrhosis. And these findings have been our main rationale for hep B treatment and, and our goal of hep B suppression in our effort to reverse this natural history. So our goals with hep B antiviral therapy in the short term are to suppress the viral level, normalize the ALT, and then if they have eantigen at baseline, we wanna see them lose that and develop eantibody. And ultimately at the, at the biopsy level, at the histologic level, we wanna reduce that necrural inflammation, which is what fuels fibrogenesis. Our long-term goals are actually to lose that surface antigen, that marker of active infection, which is what we consider a functional cure. Um, the, and we wanna delay the development of decompensated liver disease reduce the, list, the risk of liver cancer, and then ultimately improve survival. So aside from interferon, which is less commonly used because of toxicities and suboptimal outcomes in, uh, for viral suppression, there are actually six oral antiviral agents, all of which in contrast to interferon have the advantage of low toxicity. And I've bolded the ones that are considered first line for hep B treatment. In the, in the general hep B world. Of these options, the one with the highest potency and greatest barrier for resistance with dual activity against both HIV and hep B remain, and is tenofovir, and it remains our first choice agent and the backbone of hep B therapy. So this is a summary of recommendations on when to treat and what to treat with from the major guidelines from the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases to our US OI guidelines to the European and Asian Pacific liver guidelines. And they all say essentially the same thing, which is anyone with HIV and chronic hep B should start hep B treatment regardless of CD4 count. And they should do so with a dual NRTI backbone for ART that contains tenofovir. The OI guide states specifically that someone um, who has chronic hep B should really not get lamivudine or emtricitabine as monotherapy, has the only hep B active agent. Um, and we'll, we'll go over data as to why we, want, we don't want to do that. So you can see that there's a fair amount of variability in how durable these agents are when you consider the risk of virologic breakthrough over time. Lamivudine alone, and by inference, emtricitabine is a poor choice for anyone who has chronic hep B. When you note the high cumulative in, uh, probability of treatment failure, the longer you, one is on this. Um, this is especially worth noting historically for people with HIV because they are a group that tends to be more treatment experienced and may have had antiretroviral therapy in the past with lamivudine alone before tenofovir was approved and came on the scene. So this is definitely worth thinking about in your, in your patients and whom, um, who may have had chronic hep B for longer than you, you suppose, or that you've diagnosed. Lamivudine, however, remains, um, was actually our first approved antiviral active against hep B. And this demonstrate, and was really the first one, this study demonstrated in hep B mono-infected patients with advanced liver disease that lamivudine can slow disease progression and lower the incidence of HCC. And it is really our primary proof of concept uh, for the clinical benefit of antiviral therapy and its ability to change the course of disease. We've seen this play out with tenofovir as well. 
in this landmark study of patients with hep B mono infection from the Lancet, at the end of five years, 87% of 350 patients, this is mono-infected patients who had sustained hep B suppression with tenofovir, showed improvement in their liver biopsy, in their fibrosis. And 51%, just over half, had regression of their cirrhosis after five years. So one wonders, how, how does this fibrosis reversal play out in people living with HIV and hep B? This is probably our closest study looking at this. Um, this study examined what happens with fibrosis in people with uh, HIV and hep B on tenofovir after eight years of therapy. The big caveat here is they didn't perform liver biopsies as was done in the previous study, but they, um, and which is really our gold standard for disease assessment. But instead, this group used a serum-based test for fibrosis called the fibro test, which is used more commonly in Europe. Um, here in the US is known as FibroSure. Notably, they did not see the same degree of fibrosis regression as was seen in the Lancet study, uh, and even some progression in some cases, which I think speaks to the unique risks of disease progression um, in patients who have hep B, um, who also have HIV. Ultimately, the key drawback with antiviral therapy is that it typically does not offer us a functional cure like it might with hep C, um, which for all intents and purposes is defined as a sustained loss of surface antigen and control of HBV viremia even after you withdraw treatment. And you can see here, this is a summary of clinical endpoints. These are data from, uh, from the world of hep B mono infection that the rate of this outcome, hep B surface antigen loss, is pretty low across the available first-line therapies for hep B. However, there, there is emerging data. Um, this is data that Dr. Badimo had gone over uh, yesterday from a multi-center trial of HIV hep B co-infected patients that suggested that there might, however, be an advantage with tenofovir alafenamide over tenofovir DF. Um, viral control rates were actually comparable at 48 weeks, but there was a clear difference that emerged with respect to hep B suppression that favored tenofovir AF, um, as well as other hep B outcomes, including hep B surface antigen loss. And these, I have to tell you, as someone in the field, these data were surprising for many of us because aside from the ALT normalization, we have not seen these differences play out in hep B mono infection. So I kind of want to underscore that. Um, they do, these findings do need to be replicated in other settings and with larger cohorts before we can say this is the preferred agent for chronic hep B and HIV, but, but definitely intriguing. Let's move on to case two. So this is, this is our 45-year-old man with HIV and chronic hep B, both infections effectively suppressed now with tenofovir, alafenamide, emtricitabine, and dolutegravir uh, with a normal liver panel. On exam, he has a firm non-tender liver edge, but no appreciable splenomegaly or, or spider angiomata. And his baseline ultrasound demonstrated an echogenic liver without nodularity. So what would you do next? I will, oops. So those are, those are the options before you. Do we calculate a fit forward? Do we consider him done as far as staging goes? Do we do transient elastography or consider him done because he doesn't have evidence on ultrasound? 
So submit your answers. Oh, interesting. So there's a bit of a spread here. Oh, okay. <laughs> Between A and C. Um, I actually, so this is great. <laughs> this is an opportunity for learning. So I, I wrote this question because I don't think liver disease staging is really on the radar of many um, HIV providers. And I, I think in some ways this is because it doesn't really factor into treatment decisions because we're going to just treat people um, as they might as it might in people who have hep B mono infection. But um, it is important to consider in your patients, and I'll go over why. And also to know that routine clinical labs, so CBC, chemistry panel with LFTs, and an ultrasound are not sufficiently sensitive for ruling out cirrhosis, um, which is really, if you think about it, a histologic diagnosis. And I want to emphasize this point, especially for ultrasound, because this is something that clinicians uh, forget about, which is the, the sensitivity of an ultrasound to detect cirrhosis is actually only about 40%. And for this reason, you can't rely on this modality for staging liver disease. Its main role is really for us, I mean, you can look for signs of portal hypertension and there can definitely be corroborating findings, but the main goal in clinical care is really to, to um, it's our screening tool for liver cancer. So, yeah, so FIB4, as it turns out, has been validated for hepatitis C and HIV, um, but it has a limited role in staging for chronic hep B and HIV. It does not do a good job of discriminating advanced fibrosis in those on antiviral therapy. And I think the counterpart is like, we don't use FIB4 in the chronic hep C world after they've achieved SVR, do we? I mean, like we can certainly look at it, but it doesn't have that predictive power the way it does before we treat the hep C. It's the same way. Uh, you want to think about it for, um, for hep B. So it's not something we can rely on. So really, we, um, our best modality for non-invasive liver disease staging in patients with hepatitis B with or without HIV is likely transient elastography, which is an office-based non-invasive method for determining liver stiffness. Um, and it was originally validated in people with chronic hep C, and has been shown to have good performance characteristics with people with HIV and chronic hep B, the, with significant concordance with liver biopsy results and an accuracy in the range of about 85%. So why, so why do we pursue this hunt for cirrhosis? Well, this is because it remains one of the main predictors of hepatocellular carcinoma and one of the strongest indications for initiating liver cancer screening in a patient with chronic hep B. And how we screen is by abdominal ultrasound every six months with or without a serum alpha feed protein. Just a reminder that liver cancer is a pretty aggressive malignancy with a poor prognosis. Um, and this is uh, definitely no exception for people with HIV. In fact, there's some observational data suggesting that the rates of disease as well as outcomes may be, um, the rates of disease may be higher and the, the outcomes may be poorer in people with HIV um, as compared to people without. Liver cancer is one of our leading causes of death among non-AIDS malignancies. In the North American AIDS cohort, we have observed a trend in increasing incidence of HCC along with kind of other non-AIDS malignancies. Um, it's certainly one of our more lethal non-AIDS malignancies. And this is um, with both 
uh, hepatitis B and hepatitis C driving this increased risk. So we evaluated what the key predictors are of, um, of HIV and Hep B associated liver cancer um, in any accord. And we identified four independent factors, which were age, hazardous alcohol use, chronic hepatitis C co-infection. So if you were, if you're unfortunate to be triply infected and have HIV, chronic Hep C, hep, chronic Hep B, and then HBV viral level. So HBV viremia is a real driver of HCC pathogenesis. In this model, among patients with, uh, who had quantitative HBV viral levels done, an HBV DNA level greater than 200 was associated with a 2.7-fold increased risk of later developing HCC. And this risk was especially elevated when you get to viral levels exceeding 200,000. Consistent with these data, um, we found that the, the duration HBV suppression with ART um, uh, was protective and that this protection was um, more pronounced the longer you had HBV suppression. So these data in many ways, I think, extend the data that I had showed, I'd shown you earlier from Taiwan that HBV, in HBV mono-infected patients and really emphasizes the fact that we need to be tracking and optimizing HBV suppression in our co-infected patients if we wanna see better outcomes for them. All righty, so our last case, this is a 25-year-old man with HIV infection, CD4 count of 190, virally suppressed on tenofovir DF, emtricitabine, and dolutegravir, who's here for routine care. Has had 10 male partners in the past two months and would like STI screening. And on review of labs, you note that he has, um, his hep B serologies are all negative. So core antibody, surface antibody, surface antigen are all uh, non-reactive. So what would you do next? Wait, start, or don't bother, <laughs> since he's already on top of here. All right, let's see what you guys think. Oh, yeah. All righty. So it looks like most of you are favor starting. Um, and then uh, the next group wants to wait. Um, so this is, this is great. Okay. So hep B immunization has actually had great success in reducing the surface antigen seroprevalence worldwide, especially as part of a national program. Uh, we saw this in Asia, we saw this here in the United States, but unfortunately its efficacy, while high in immunocompetent patients, um, not quite as optimal in people living with HIV and, and responses, depending on the case series you look at, vary anywhere from 25 to 45% for seroprotective responses after, after a series. This is uh, data from our HIV clinic in Seattle where we examined factors associated with a reduced vaccine response and found that the Nader CD4, as well as whether you had detectable HIV RNA, were two key independent predictors of a lack of response. So you can see that in, in contrast, about 75% of those who had a Nader CD4 above 200 and were suppressed responded compared to less than 15% of those who had a Nader CD4 of less than 200 and who were viremic. 
So I can see, I can see why some of you guys wanted to wait. Um, I'm not sure I would wait in this patient just because he's pretty high risk. Um, and I, I, I know that he's on tenofovir and there's some data to suggest that it might offer some pre-exposure prophylaxis for hep B, but I don't rely on that actually. Um, and I, I, I think it's kind of an unproven strategy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, this begs the question, how do we improve the immunologic response to, to hep B vaccine? And I think there've been many strategy studies studied. These are a number of them, including double dosing, but ultimately none has been shown to be consistently effective um, to support uh, widespread adoption, at least with upfront immunization. Um, but this may change with the use of the relatively uh, new CPG adjuvanted hep B vaccine. So the FDA approved the use of this vaccine, um, which is known, the brand name is Heplosav, in people without HIV in the general population in 2017. And in contrast to the older um, standard recombinant hep B vaccines, this vaccine is adjuvanted with an oligonucleotide, so CPG, which binds to the toll-like receptor 9 and signals the innate immune system pathway in response to the, the surface antigen. So the main registration trial showed that it stimulated a very robust and early seroprotective response shown here in blue. And it had improved responses, not only in older individuals who have historically not mounted as high uh, seroprotection rates, but also in other subgroups of patients in whom responses to the standard recombinant vaccine have been less than optimal. So what data do we have on this uh, CPG adjuvant vaccine in people with HIV? We don't yet have the same large scale efficacy data. Um, aside from some small case series, which suggests that the rate of seroprotection may be closer to about 80%, but the precision on this estimate is, is not great <laughs> because of, of our small numbers. But the ACTU is currently examining this through the Beehive trial, so we should know more soon. But when it comes to seroprotection, uh, for me, when I think about hep B, I think it's not only about whether you can mount a response, but how durable that response might be. And we actually have some data about this. So this was a study from Canada that looked at an early progenitor of what was to become Heplosat B, the CPG adjuvanted vaccine. And this trial examined the long-term seroprotective uh, responses in about 38 HIV-infected patients who were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive either just kind of the standard recombinant with or without the CPG adjuvant. And they um, measured hep B surface antibody titers every six months for five years. And you can see that the CPG adjuvanted vaccine group had a more durable lasting protection over five years as compared to those who just got the standard recombinant. And I think we will need to look out for these data and in larger clinical studies that will be emerging in the coming years. But I think this is really, this is really exciting. So the hep B OI guidelines currently now you give you the option of using hep B vaccine in the form of the standard three-dose recombinant vaccine series, either as Enterix, Recombivax, or Twinrix. This year, these guidelines also say you can use Heplosab B off-label, understanding that the quality of evidence is still limited at this time. That's why it has a C3 grade as opposed to an A2. Um, it also reminds us that we should be checking for seroconversion. This is something I think um, clinicians often forget to do. I mean, I certainly forget to do it. Um, and then acting on that 
you know, lack of response with revaccinating either as a double dose, three dose series, or with HEPLA-SAV-B. But I think for me, the, the bottom line is, I think we just have to do you know, better about vaccine delivery in general. Um, the CDC published in 2018, a, a study evaluating how HIV clinics were performing in terms of hep B vaccine delivery. And the answer was not so great. Um, less than 10% of patients who were susceptible were actually immunized in their first year of care. In addition, almost 8% of this cohort, the susceptible cohort, had actually evidence of natural infection during this time of observation, which wasn't very long, which is a real reminder, it's a very stark reminder that hep B is actively circulating, it's out there, and that we need to protect our patients from this. Um, I, I will add that Ryan White Clinics did a little better <laughs> in this study. <laughs> um, yeah, so here's the summary. Hep B remains a big contributor to liver-related deaths. Tenofovir remains the cornerstone of Hep B control and in HIV and Hep B context. And there is no functional cure for Hep B, although uh, there can be in a very small percentage of patients. Um, and Hep B suppression um, is really important. It really remains our primary goal to reduce the risk of complications. And then stage your patients with elastography if it's available to you. Um, we can miss cirrhosis otherwise. And then as far as vaccination goes, just do it. <laughs> so that's, that's it for me, I think. And um, I'm happy to take some questions. Um, let me get this microphone. There we go. Um, very well done. I especially like the way the data came together uh, following up from Roger's presentation yesterday, because I think you showed very nicely how there was not a difference between TAF and TDF um, historically, but then the can, yeah. one thing I was trying to put together is I was expecting um, the incidence of hepatocellular carcinoma to be less than you still had it kind of going up in the latter era. And, and the data that you showed in terms of ability for all these markers to come down, um, yeah, I don't know if you have to go to it, but yeah, let me try to. you know what I'm talking about? So it didn't quite add up. Can you reconcile that for me? Like there, you're that. Um, so unless I misread the slide. Oh, that, that in the mod, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is, this is very comparable to that first slide I showed you where both end-stage liver disease and liver cancer, which are kind of like our two main dreaded outcomes for liver disease, haven't really changed a whole lot in the modern era. And I think, I, I think it's kind of fascinating. Um, I think it also goes along with some of that data that I was showing you, with, which is that we see, all, we see this fibrosis regression in people with just hep B alone why aren't we seeing the same thing in people with HIV? And I think it's kind of a fascinating difference. And I think speaks to, well, it speaks to the, fact, the particular vulnerabilities of people living with HIV. I mean, they have other insults happening in the liver. They've got that chronic immune activation that we were talking about earlier also plays a role in the liver. Um, and so there, there are a lot of these sort of unmeasured factors that come into play um, so that we will still see disease, even though we're kind of suppressing the virus and doing the best we can. Um, and so that, that's just something to keep in mind. Yeah, because the numbers look better, but it didn't translate into less yeah. HCC. Okay, so lots of questions. We'll try to go quickly here. Um, uh, NASH, additive risk factor for cirrhosis, does it also lead to more 
uh, hepatocellular carcinoma when someone's HBV infected? Yeah, I definitely yeah. think um, we didn't end up measuring NASH in that any court study, uh, large, large because it's kind of hard hard to measure that, like kind of with routine clinic, uh, routinely collected clinical data. But I do think NASH can play um, an additive role. It's definitely a risk factor for HCC. And the tricky thing about NASH, just clinically, is people who have very bright, echogenic-looking livers. Um, it's really hard to do liver cancer screening with an ultrasound in those folks. Some of you probably realize this. So try to pick out like a new nodule in the background of all that brightness can be really challenging. So um, that's that's an area I think that is ripe for just some improvement in, in our ability to find these tumors in, in some patients. So let's say we do the right thing. We do the vaccination. We check and boom, antibodies are present after vaccination. Do you check again, five years, 10 years? Oh, what do that's you do? such a good question. Yeah, at the moment, the guidelines don't ask us to keep checking the surface antibody. Um, you know, there is a, this phenomenon of waning surface antibody um, in patients who get naturally exposed or who get immunized. And in someone who doesn't have HIV, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not immune protected. They, they will usually mount an anamnestic response once they're kind of rechallenged. But that doesn't seem to hold quite as, as true for people with HIV. So that waning surface antibody may actually mean that they might be losing uh, immune protection. And it's going to differ from patient to patient. But at the moment, we don't have a lot of evidence to say we should keep monitoring these folks and then keep boosting them. At the moment, we don't have that, that guidance. Um, but I do, I do wonder if the landscape is going to change once Heplosat B, once we see some of the data on Heplosat B come out. So yeah, stay tuned for changes in that, in that regard. So this question comes back to one of your cases about um, what does it matter that the patient might have cirrhosis? Uh, they're going to be at risk for HCC even if they don't have cirrhosis. So um, is it really worth going through that or do you just do the esophageal screening and that type of thing? Yeah, no, um, I think, I mean, at the moment, we still do ultrasound. I, I'm not sure if I'm quite understanding kind of the, the background of that question, but people with, I mean, I think of people with cirrhosis as, as being, it's like the fertile soil on which liver cancer grows. So it's really important for us to actually find those folks. It's hard to do liver cancer screening, <laughs> um, just the same way it's hard to do mammogram and other screening, like just to stay on top of it. Um, and, and, and the tricky thing is that we'd have to ask people to do it twice a year. Um, but the people with cirrhosis, if you know that they have cirrhosis, you're going to lean on them a little harder, right? Um, and at the moment, you know, our main way of tackling this um, is really kind of local regional therapy is ablative therapy, and they've got a lot more modalities for that, um, both laser and other that, that can actually, you know, just anecdotally, I will say that it has uh, resulted in uh, improved outcomes. But we don't, again, have large-scale data saying that in people with HIV and viral hepatitis, liver cancer screening has been shown to be effective. So that, you know, this is another area where we sort of extrapolated <laughs> from, from people without HIV. Um, but still, we, we do recommend, it is recommend that we do this. So yeah, and that we find these folks. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of people will convert and become aviremic uh, but there are some who don't, who maintain HBV DNA. Do you enhance the uh, approach to this by adding in Tecavir? Oh, yeah. No, I actually have a case on this um, during my liver breakout, for those of you who are joining, <laughs> um, that I, I, this, this problem comes up quite a bit. 
Um, I will um, I will say in the minutes remaining that I I do think about adding entecavir. Um, it depends on the clinical situation, um, it, but I, I do think about it. But I also think about reserving entecavir because the fact of the matter is a, a lot of our patients are hep B lamivudine resistant and entecavir same, shares the same resistance pathway as lamivudine for hep B. So you're not gonna get as big a bang for your buck as you might hope with, um, with uh, entecavir as you might think. And, and, and it's our only other hep B antiviral. So I personally wanna conserve that drug yeah. for when I really need it and for whatever reason, like I can't use tenofovir. So that's, so I have to, so I have to think of, my answer to that is I think about it on a case by case basis. Right. And, and you mentioned, uh, I think this is important to go back to that TAF-TDF thing. That study looked at a cut point of greater than or less than 29. Your data from the epidemiology showed 200 right. or higher, or what was it, 2,000 or yeah, something. Yeah, 200 for us. And then like in the hepi mono-infection world, it's like 2,000, yeah. Right, so it doesn't seem it. like many people on TDF or TAF get above 200 or stay above it. Is that accurate or no? Um, Sorry, is the question whether- In other words, if, if somebody's on TAF or TDF, they may have detectable HPV DNA. How often is it above 200 and maintained at that high level? Is that kind of common or uncommon? Well, I, I will say that the kinetics of hep B decay, viral decay and suppression is a, is a lot slower than what we see for HIV or hep C. So, so I have a lot of HIV providers in my clinic who are like, why is the hep B not suppressing? That's actually one of the first questions I get asked. And I often say, you have to be patient. It's just gonna take some time and um, for complete suppression to happen. And in the hep B world, we consider complete suppression um, being, being less than 200 is pretty good, but people can be, have this low grade persistent viremia for quite some time to the point where like the latest iteration of the AASLD hep B guidance has this whole section on persistent HPV viremia because it's just a phenomenon we see. But these patients will eventually get suppressed. It's just, I, this is something I see in my liver clinic with hep B mono-infected patients as well as HIV infected patients. The other thing I would um, mention is that people with HIV and chronic hep B, part of the reason why they're still HBV viremia has to do with their immune status and their immune response to the virus. And if they're starting with a CD4 count that's less than 100, they're almost gonna act like a hep B immune tolerant patient. So it's not just the drug that is important for viral clearance, it's the immune, immune response. So sometimes you actually have to see some degree of immune reconstitution occur before that hep B viremia starts coming down. So that, that's the other thing to keep in mind as, to add to thinking about patients. But, you know, I'm showing you all this data that ongoing HPV replication drives disease. So I can, I can understand people's impatience. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is we currently have kind of limited armamentarium of drugs for hep B. Right. So a lot of the European meetings have just come out with a lot of buzz about Delta hepatitis. Yeah. And I hadn't thought of much about it. I don't routinely check. Do you check for that? And if, if so, um, are you using... Uh, Bulevertad for this? Yeah, so um, I think the jury is still out. I mean, I think- Maybe the, you could give background on yeah, that. Yeah, so hepatitis delta is a satellite RNA virus um, that you can't really get infected with unless you have chronic hep B. So it kind of leverages the hep B viral machinery. And so people who have delta by, by necessity also have chronic hep B. The, the, um, 
The significance is the fact that those who have HBV and HDV have been shown to have more accelerated disease progression. And I suspect that will be true, although we haven't, don't have a lot of studies, if you have HIV in the mix as well. So, it, um, so in and of itself, it would be an indication, for example, to screen for liver cancer. Um, I have started screening for hepatitis delta in my chronic hep B cohort. And, and I, I don't necessarily make an exception for people with HIV because I think the part of the reason why uh, in the US we've said, oh, it's low prevalence is because we just haven't been checking for it. Yeah. But I think we're, we're gonna see more population-based studies, I hope, that, that show whether the prevalence seems to be low, but it definitely has some regional variability. So uh, for example, people who've originated from kind of around the Mediterranean basin, there's gonna be high, higher rates of Delta in those settings. People who've gotten their hep B in Asia, less Delta it seems, but you know, so there's a lot of regional variability. Um, in the US, it's still not clear still not clear, but it is important to know that it's it's a key cofactor in disease. So something to think about. And somebody who acquires Delta while they're chronic B, that's where you get the profound liver yeah. failure. So it's a difference of whether they've obtained it maybe at the same time and chronically living with it or acquiring it new. That's right, yeah. that's right. Great, thank you, Nina, very much. And we all look forward to your. <laughs>